Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Martin Arnold, the FT's banking editor. This week, we'll be discussing the implications of a potential Greek default, or in fact, live to you now, a actual Greek default on their IMF debt and the impact of this on the banking system, which has been closed since the start of the week with capital controls in place, limiting the amounts of money Greeks can withdraw from their banks. We'll also look at how the German regulator has written a scathing report about Deutsche Bank's involvement in the LIBOR rate rigging scandal, just as John Cryan replaces Anshu Jain at the top of the bank. Meanwhile, we'll also assess what the arrival of Tijan Tiam as chief executive of Credit Suisse is likely to mean for the Swiss lender. Joining me today in the studio is Ferdinando Giuliano, our economics correspondent, Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. Starting off with Greece, today's news is a default on their loan to the IMF. And this really takes the whole Greek crisis to a new level of concern both for financial markets and for the Eurozone system itself. What are the main implications of this, Ferdi? We knew this was coming. The Greeks have tried to avoid it several times with some creative ways of shuffling around money and then by bundling all the payments on June the 30th. But June the 30th has come and the Greeks don't have enough money to pay the IMF. Now, what does that mean? In practice, it doesn't mean so much because the IMF still has a little bit of time for Christine Lagarde to tell the board that the Greeks are in default. And anyway, the credit rating agencies have already said this has no implication for the outstanding bonds and bailout fund, the EFSF, is also very unlikely to accelerate its own payment, meaning demanding payment now. However, this is still a sign that Greece doesn't have any money to pay its debt at the moment. And this can have consequences for the European Central Bank, which needs to decide what to do with the money which is lent as an emergency tool to the Greek banks. Now, at the weekend, there's already been a big decision by the ECB. It said, we are not going to raise the amount of money which will provide as an emergency liquidity to the Greek banks. That has led to the capital controls and the closing of the banks. Now, the question is, will they raise the haircut which they take on the assets which the Greek banks have pledged to the ECB? If the ECB raises the haircut, then Greek banks will have to pledge more collateral in order to get a given amount of liquidity because the collateral they're pledging is deemed to be of lower quality by the ECB. And the worry is that Greek banks don't have enough. Just don't have enough if the haircut is raised. Now, that could mean really big, big trouble for some Greek lenders, the weakest ones. It's a big political decision. Obviously, there is a referendum coming up on Sunday. I'm sure many central bankers will prefer to just say, look, let's stay in this kind of frozen limbo until Sunday. Take a step back. I mean, doesn't the ECB, Ferdi, have a responsibility for financial stability and increasing the haircuts on the collateral that they have against these loans, these emergency liquidity assistance to the Greek banks? That clearly would not help financial stability at all. It would do exactly the opposite. That's one view. The other view is we should only provide emergency liquidity to solvent banks. Now, 
the Greek government is not solvent at the moment because he's not able to pay the IMF. So because Greek banks are so entangled with the Greek government, then they're not solvent. That would be the kind of Bundesbank hawkish view. Lutheran type view that they can't pay their debts, so they must be put into default. Though I think we do have to point out here as well, the ECB certainly has form in terms of giving assistance to insolvent banks. I mean, there was a case in Ireland for years where arguably banks were getting ELA in a case where banks were not actually solvent. The issue for the ECB becomes the impossibility of actually cutting off ELA. In theory, ELA is renewed every two weeks and banks are obliged to repay it. In practice, if the ECB says we need the Greek banks to repay all its ELA, the Greek banks simply can't. So there is a practical concern, which is they can't get back the ELA, therefore they may as well formally continue it. Well, of course, that's the big political decision, because the minute you pull the plug, then that means essentially Greece will have to either bail in depositors on a dramatic scale, which has important political consequences or most likely print some new currency in order to recapitalize the banks. So pulling the plugs on ELA, as Laura was saying, is a dramatic step. Before this referendum at the weekend, the ball is very much in the court of the ECB and we'll be watching them very closely. Now, what about the foreign banks and their exposure to Greece? Emma, you've been doing some work on this. Who's most exposed? Well, taking a step back first off, there was actually a meeting yesterday between Chancellor George Osborne, Governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, and a number of senior ministers, obviously focusing on the UK. And they came to the conclusion that the UK financial system has quite limited exposure to Greece, although the eventual impact on the wider economy should not be underestimated. But they pointed out, and figures also show, that banks and the financial system have done a lot to reduce their exposure to Greece over the past six months specifically. So figures show at the end of last year, year that the UK had some $12 billion of exposure to Greece in lending and other types of exposure. By comparison, Germany had about $13 billion and France only about $1.6, less than $2 billion essentially, so a lot smaller. The banks in the UK have done a lot to whittle down this exposure in the last six months specifically. So recent figures from the Bank of England show that the major British banks and building societies have some $3.2 billion of exposure. And of this, only $31 million is to Greek banks specifically. Now, analysts say that HSBC is the worst affected. They had about $6 billion at the end of last year, and we've obtained figures that show they've managed to almost half this over a three-month period. So at the end of the first quarter, they had about $3.5 billion exposure. So they've significantly whittled that down. They've also got a branch network over there, only 15 branches, but those are actually closed alongside other retail branches in Greece until the 5th of July, I believe. But they're obviously watching this and assessing the situation as it goes on. Yeah. And then other banks, Royal Bank of Scotland had an exposure of nearly two billion in sterling a few years ago, but they've whittled this down to about four hundred million recently. Okay. I mean the banks won't necessarily lose all of that money, even if there is a new drachma that's introduced. I mean it'll just be massively devalued if those loans are converted into new drachmas, but it won't all be lost. Um Laura, you've been looking at some of the wider consequences for some of the Central and Eastern European banks that are owned by the Greek banks and what that might mean. Yeah, so the Greek banks would always have been big lenders traditionally into some of the Central and Eastern European countries, particularly Bulgaria and Romania. Greek banks have actually been cutting their international operations as a result of their numerous bailouts. So they aren't as big as they used to be, but they're still certainly big enough to be a concern. 
So we are already seeing the regulators in those countries trying to take steps to reassure people that in the event that there is a Greek catastrophe, that it isn't going to have too big an impact on the international operations of the Greek banks. So fortunately for the countries involved, most of these international operations are actually done through their own standalone subsidiaries. So they're ring-fenced, so in they a are sense, ring-fenced with their own capital. They do have their own capital. We had the EBRD saying these are all well capitalised and these are all liquid in their own right. So the idea is that in theory, then the regulator in that country, in the event of the parent bank going into default, can actually seize control of the local subsidiary, which should have enough assets, enough liquidity to look after itself. Yep. That's how the theory works. In practice, panic comes in. In practice, people on the streets, they hear a Greek bank is lapsing in Greece. They hear Greece is leaving the Eurozone and defaulting and they panic. They yeah. go down to their local Greek bank and they start taking out all their cash and then things get messy. So that panic mm-hmm. is what people are all trying to avoid now. Yeah, and yeah. I, think, I think that's the point which could be made more generally. There is direct exposure to Greek banks, but there is indirect contagion. And that's the big question mark mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. What will happen on the stock market? What will happen on the bond market? Now, on Monday, the day was pretty bad for all European stocks, all global stocks. But actually, if we look at the contagion, for example, on peripheral government bonds, it was limited. And that's because the European Central Bank has changed its stance over the last few years. Now, we know Mario Draghi will go and buy up government bonds if needed. He he can do it. He's buying 60 billion a month. So that's a lot. But that's been so far so good. But in case of Brexit... Will that be enough? Mm, we shall see. Okay, now switching to Deutsche Bank and the Financial Times reported over the weekend details of the German regulator Barfin's report into the LIBOR rate rigging scandal, which was frankly scathing about the culture of the bank and the responsibilities of some of the top executives at Deutsche for creating the conditions in which this scandal could occur. And particularly singled out was Anshu Jain, the co-chief executive of the bank, who is credited with building up its global investment banking activities. So Laura, tell me what we make of this and what's your assessment of the uh, report that we've seen from the German regulator? Well, I think in one sense, it was kind of ironic that this all came to light after Anshu Jain had actually already said he would leave him. And today is actually his last day because certainly had this come to light prior to Anshu Jain saying he would leave, this would certainly have have hastened his departure because it's really hard to see how any co-CEO could actually survive allegations from their main regulator that he, and we quote here, may knowingly have made inaccurate statements to his own regulator. I mean, that would be very hard to come back from. In terms of whether or not he deliberately made misleading statements to the Bundesbank, the country's central bank, Deutsche Bank had put out a statement on the record saying that he did not do that, um, not knowingly anyway, and that they're putting it down to a misunderstanding as to what he was being asked when he was asked this specific question. Well, I think certainly if you look at the language of the report from Baffin, it looks like there was much more than a simple misunderstanding. I mean, it would be very hard for any CEO to actually answer that. But it's certainly a very interesting turning point in the relationship between Deutsche Bank and between Baffin because Baffin has always been seen as something of the kind of champion of Deutsche Bank, of the protector of Deutsche Bank and certainly the tone in this report is anything but. So I think that's very interesting. So they're showing their teeth. But what does this mean for John Cryan who, as of tomorrow, replaces Anshu Jain as co-chief executive and will from May next year 
be the sole chief executive of Germany's largest bank. He's got a lot of work to do to repair relations with regulators, but also to clean up the culture of the bank, hasn't he? Well, I think there are probably two ways of looking at this from his perspective. I mean, the first is that if he does plan to go into the bank and make some fairly big changes, particularly on the personnel front, this now gives him the kind of ammunition to do this. It was certainly a good platform to go in and say, we need a fresh look at the culture here. We need fresh heads in various places. So it helps him in that sense. But it does show how big a job he has to do and it shows how deep-seated some of these attitudes are within the bank. So in that sense, he has a bigger job than possibly he thought he was actually signing up for. But it should be actually easier for him to do it. Great. Now, switching briefly to Credit Suisse, where there's also been a change at the top with the arrival of Tijan Tiam, the former head of the insurer Prudential, who's taken over from Brady Duggan as chief executive of Switzerland's second biggest bank. Credit Suisse has got um, quite a few of its own issues that Tijan Tiam is going to have to grapple with. What do you think will be top of his intray? Laura, you wrote an analysis of this this week. What are the main things on his um, watch list? So I guess there are three or four big, big questions facing the bank. I mean, the first is what it wants to do In terms of its overall strategy, it is widely expected to refocus around the wealth management side to pull back resources from the investment bank. We don't know how exactly he is going to do that, but I think he will look to actually take stock and see where would it make sense to cut the investment bank? Are there any areas within the investment bank where they could actually do things better? Should they be investing into certain parts? particularly capital-light parts of the investment bank. The problem with Credit Suisse's investment bank, as it stands, is it is an incredibly capital-intensive machine, which just becomes more and more difficult in these kind of regulatory times. So I think he'll look at the investment bank, see, is he able to cut costs? Is he able to rotate into less capital-intensive activities? And are there whole activities which ought to be cut? Then we come to the other side of the bank, or the other big pillar, which is on the wealth management side. We're expecting him to find a way to grow it. The big question there is, does he go for organic growth or does he look outside for a big acquisition? If he goes for a big acquisition, that brings us into the third point. How do you actually fund that big acquisition? Certainly Credit Suisse and the possibility of a capital raise has been long discussed. The outgoing CEO, Brady Dugan, he always said Credit Suisse had enough capital. There were a lot of people in the market who said Credit Suisse could benefit from a bigger capital buffer, particularly as the authorities in its home country, Switzerland, look at actually increasing the amount of capital that these two big-to-fail banks have. So if Tijan were to go for a large acquisition, that would then give him cover to actually increase the overall capital base as well. So there is an expectation that if they needed, say, $2 billion for an acquisition, they might go for $2.5 billion capital raise, just to take away the whole uncertainty that investors have had about the capital adequacy of the bank. Very interesting. And given that uh, you've also got Bill Winters as the new chief executive of Standard Chartered, who has started in the last couple of weeks, and he's got a capital question to address at the UK bank, you could have John Cryan, Tijan Tiam and Bill Winters all racing to be the first out of the gates to raise capital. The good news, if that does happen, is it is still a very good environment to raise capital in. I mean, the thing is, central bank rates are so low that there is a real hunt for yield and people are much more keen to give capital to the new guy in the job. So even if they were all to come, they'd probably all make it. I'm going to put you on the spot now, Laura. If you were a betting lady, who uh, do you think will have the best share price performance over the next year between the three of them? Probably Deutsche, because it has had more downside recently, and I think they have further to rebound from. Okay, right. You heard it here first. That's it for the week. All that's left to do is to thank Ferdinando, Laura and Emma for their contributions and to thank you for listening. 
Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast presented by me, Claire Barrett, the editor of FT Money. The Money Show comes out every Wednesday and you can download it at ft.com slash podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.